Lingua Britannica is a podcast that uses ethnographic interviews to study language use in the extreme metal community. We are studying a music scene known for its love of themes and topics generally considered offensive, and it is likely that some episodes will touch on topics or opinions some listeners may find tasteless or ethically problematic. Ethnographic researchers aim to adopt the interviewee's point of view so that we can draw out and study the attitudes, beliefs, and practices that are important to them. We want to make it clear that in presenting these conversations here, we do not endorse any of their content. Our aim is to explore the thought processes behind language use in this long-running, international and yet understudied scene. here from Lingua Brutalica. I'm just jumping in before the start of this episode to talk about a few things because this is a very special episode for a number of reasons. First and foremost, this is our 50th episode, which is awesome. We never thought we'd get this far, uh, and it is an absolute delight to know that what we're doing has been of interest to so many people and an absolute honor to speak to so many exciting extreme metal artists and have them let them let us into what they're doing and, and what they're thinking. Uh, so from me, from Jess and from my editor, John. Thank you all so much for being part of this. It's been a blast, and we really hope that we can deliver another 50 episodes to you and even more. Beyond that, we also have something special this episode because one of our goals with this podcast is to highlight voices that aren't heard as often in extreme metal dialogues. And one of these voices is, of course, people who are not fluent or native speakers of English. That's always tricky, though, because this is an English language podcast. But every once in a while, we do get a chance to do an episode with live interpretation, and that's what's going to be happening today. So you're going to hear from the band Isilial, and there will be Ricky, who is our live translator and involved with the band, and also Himari, who is the vocalist and lyricist. Uh, sometimes Ricky will speak as himself, but oftentimes what is happening is that we say the question, he translates it, the translation is going to be cut from the interview, and then Himari will respond in Japanese. Uh, we'll have some of her voice present and then fade out into Ricky translating, and he'll often speak from the first person. So when he says I in these cases, he means Himari. Uh, so that's kind of live translation. We want to make sure that her voice is there, but, you know, that people that listen to this podcast can understand what's going on. And finally, this podcast episode is involving intersection of metal and idol culture, which is something we haven't done before. So for people without a background, just really quick, uh, idol culture is a type of fandom that is most associated with uh, Japanese and Japanese pop, although it has spread worldwide, and of course spread to the realm of metal, uh, most popularly probably with baby metal, but there's a lot of bands uh, doing interesting intersections. Idol culture involves a number of practices, such as rather than headbanging, they're often memorized uh, moves or dances that go along with songs, and people perform what is sometimes referred to as oshikatsu, which involves activities meant to learn about and connect with the artists that we're interested in. I mean, arguably, metal fans have been doing oshikatsu of some kind forever, but you know these kind of labeled terms will come up in the interview, so I kind of wanted to give that background. And we will be asking, you know, uh, if some of the practices from idol culture are in what Isilial does. So, yeah, hopefully that gives you some background. Thanks again for being part of what we do and, and being here with us. We're really excited to show you what we've got coming up in 2024. 
We're going to take a quick break after this episode, though, so our next episode will be more than three weeks away, likely at the uh, end of January. See you then, and enjoy the episode. Hi, and welcome back to Lingua Britannica with me, Jess Crook, and my co-host, Wes Robertson. Hello. Today, we're talking to Himari Tsukashiro and Ricky Wilson of Isilil. How are you today? Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having us. So just to kick things off, um, as we always do, how would you describe uh, Isil's music to someone who hasn't heard it before? Uh, Wikipedia and Encyclopedia Metallum describe you as symphonic metal slash rock. Uh, but is this label your preferred one? Do you consider the music more rock, uh, more metal? Do you even like jive with the rock label at all? So Himari said that she considers herself a metal baby. So she isn't well versed in all of the nuances of heavy metal. But if asked to describe Basilial, she would say that she sings music that will give you, or that is intended to give you the power to live another day. Cool. Okay, great. <laughs> uh, Ricky, you're involved in the, in the music part of the band, right? The background? That is correct. Yes. Would, would you describe what you guys do as, as metal or rock or symphonic? How, how would you personally label it? Yeah, I would say it's uh, post-black metal, symphonic metal, uh, and a little bit of melodic death metal, actually. Um, so our current songwriter, the songwriter for our first album, is Norwegian. He's from Bergen, Norway, uh, Nikolai Hovland. And so he's very well-versed in kind of the black metal scene. Our producer for the first album was Fredrik Nordstrom from uh, Jotobori, Sweden. And so he is obviously kind of a legend in that symphonic death metal, like Yotobori um, sound, Gothenburg sound uh, milieu. So I think we have aspects of both of those working together to give us a very Scandinavian sound, along with a lot of Japanese influence as well. Okay. And how did you end up with this mix of sounds? Like, was it your intention from the get-go to incorporate all of these kind of diverse influences and in developing Isalil's sound? So, yeah, um, it was actually a really natural process. So we started out with Komyo Kishi, which is the opening track on the first album. And from there, kind of just following the story, the story of the album along, we found a lot of different influences, a lot of different genres kind of finding their way into the overall sound. Um, I think for me as well, uh, we started out from a more kind of ambient black, post-black metal sound. But uh, speaking with Nikolai about a lot of the different uh, bands that we liked, a lot of our different musical influences, we both had a very strong like uh, melodic death metal influence in there, a lot of kind of Swedish sound in there. And we also wanted to incorporate uh, some kind of folk instruments, uh, both Scandinavian as well as Japanese into the music to kind of reflect the cultures working together there. So... Before you started this band, I guess this is actually for, for both of you as well. How did you feel about uh, the role of lyrics in metal? Like, did you care? We've had people on this podcast who have, you know, say they poured over lyric sheets as kids and other people who just didn't pay any attention until they started uh, writing their own music. Uh, where do you two stand on this? Actually, let me kind of jump in there mm. just super quickly uh, before Himari answers. So previously we worked together on a group mm -hmm. and for the group, I actually did all of the lyrics myself. Mm -hmm. And Himari helped as kind of a like a brush up or as sort of a polisher on the Japanese side. Um, so most of the lyrics were Japanese. I'm obviously not a native Japanese speaker. And so Himari would help me uh, both from a vocalist standpoint, like, you know, you can't fit this many syllables into this short of a phrase. And also from a Japanese standpoint, like this sounds terrible in Japanese. What are you thinking? This would sound way better. 
For Isilial, Himadi is actually doing all of the lyrics herself. So this is her first time doing the lyrics from scratch on her own. So uh, basically, for Isilial, I'm really writing from my own experience, from my own feelings. And so there weren't a lot of other sources that I received influence from. And so, like, but since writing those lyrics, like, have you developed any interest um, in metal lyrics more broadly? Um, like, have you, you know, developed enough of a sense of, you know, what's kind of common or uncommon in metal lyricism? So basically, I haven't really been taking a lot of other lyrics themselves into consideration. But moreover than that, I think in metal, like the themes of life and death, these really big themes are very present there. And so since I'm writing metal songs, I really like to take those sort of big themes as an influence and wrestle with those in the songs. So what do you think makes for uh, good metal lyrics and conversely, you know, bad metal lyrics? So I think for me, there aren't really any lyrics that I don't like that I would consider bad lyrics um, in terms of vocals, in terms of like vocal um, performances. I definitely have things that I prefer and don't prefer. But in terms of lyrics, I think really those lyrics that are coming from a place of I want to die, but I'm going to continue living like I'm going to somehow kind of really give it my all to continue on living through this and putting it all on stage, really putting it into those lyrics are the ones that really speak to me. So for example, talking about Japanese metal bands, there's a band called Ningen Isu that I really like, and I've been listening to them a lot recently, particularly their latest album. And in their lyrics, you see a lot of contraposition. For example, good and evil, God and the devil, life and death. And I think that that those contrasting images really help both uh, both sides to shine. You know, you can't have one without the other. And so those really strong contrasts are, I think, one thing that really draws me into metal lyrics. I think Anise are awesome. <laughs> I love that band. They're really cool. All right, yeah, awesome. So, um, well, this is the first time we've talked to anybody that that does metal in an intersection of uh, kind of metal and idol culture. Uh, not only this band, but uh, the band you're talking about previously, that was, um, uh, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, but uh, Necronomic title, right? Uh, Necronomidal. Necronomidal, yeah. sorry. Um, so in both cases, you have kind of an intersection of, of metal, right, and and idol. Um, is there an, like, an idleness to the lyrics in your mind? Like when, when you were writing lyrics for, for this band, were you considering a balancing like a metalness and an idleness? Or was this all, as you mentioned earlier, just kind of you writing like your feelings and, and what you wanted to convey. So I think when I'm writing lyrics, I'm not really taking that concept of idol into consideration when I'm writing them, but I started my path, my career in entertainment as an idol. And so when I'm performing and in other aspects of my performance, I really am kind of uh, putting to use everything that I learned when I was performing as an idol. I think moreover than even myself, a lot of times, a lot of the fans are coming from that idol milieu, that idol culture. 
And because of that, when they come to shows, they're bringing elements of that into kind of their own, the way they enjoy the shows or the way they interact with the shows. For example, um, you see moshing in metal shows, obviously, as well, but you see moshing at idol shows, they bring that in. And there's also a very specific type of um, like fan interaction called otage, uh, like otaku performance or otaku arts that are involved like special calls or motions or things like that during the show. Uh, yeah, or using pen lights or um, things like that. And so a lot of times the fans will kind of bring that into the overall live performance. And I think it's really cool to see that my past is connecting into my present and that idol culture is still kind of present even though we're doing what's pretty much a metal show right now. Hmm. Um, can I ask, um, did you, write lyrics as an idol as well or is this just your first time writing lyrics at all so uh writing lyrics from scratch it's my first time doing this as a solo but i was also helping with kind of the lyric composition when i was in the group <laughs> but I was actually in one group before Necronomital, and at that time, I did write lyrics to a song by myself. <laughs> a song by the name of Bad Story. I wrote the lyrics to that myself. <laughs> but that's kind of black history. That's like my, my, my medieval period. <laughs> Okay, because I wanted to ask like what you kind of noticed in terms of differences and how you would approach writing lyrics for like an idol performance versus writing lyrics for like a metal project. Yeah, I think there's actually a really big difference between the two. Um, so the times are changing a bit now, but traditionally for idols, you couldn't show everything. You couldn't show your all of your feelings or all of your emotions on stage because part of being an idol was also maintaining this dream, kind of maintaining this like uh, perfected vision of the performer. And so if you put all of your feelings into the songs, it would be a bit too raw. You know, it's not polished enough. But now with my solo project, I'm able to really just uh, directly express everything that I would want to say myself. And so I don't really need to worry about those sort of limitations. So in that way, there's a big difference between the two. Well, that answer actually leads really well into uh, the final question we're going to ask before we move into uh, questions about lyrics specifically, which is that um, in scholarship on metal, there's long been a debate on whether or not lyrics reflect, you know, personal statements or just kind of fantasy. Uh, and obviously there's bands that do one or the other or somewhere in between. Uh, but where do you kind of lie in, in this spectrum? Are your lyrics uh, uh, like just fantastical tales or do you view them as personal statements? I think for me, it's a bit complex when I'm writing the lyrics, I actually find myself reliving my own past and really speaking directly from things that I've gone through or things that have happened to me. But when I'm singing the songs, I'm really in that kind of fantasy realm. So I'm sort of bringing those experiences that I actually had into the realm of fantasy through the performance. Well, so our first question then moving into the lyrics themselves is pretty straightforward um, because your lyrics are based mostly in Japanese. Um, and we've talked to a few artists 
from Japan to date, both on the podcast and part of our like formal research. And many of them have mentioned uh, a pressure more in the past than now, but certainly a pressure to use English in Japanese metal, uh, with many people treating it as a marker of authenticity. Uh, we even have met people, for instance, that say that they didn't want to use Japanese because they would be considered a visual K-band and things like that. Um, so indeed, debates over whether to use Japanese or English have long been present in Japanese heavy music scenes, such as the Nihongo Roku Ronso, or the Japanese rock debates back between members of Fal uh, Flower Traveling Band and Happy Endo, uh, you know, decades and decades ago. Did you feel this pressure at all? Like, did you ever worry about using Japanese for metal influenced music? Uh, worry about like backlash or critiques for um, not using the authentic language of metal as as some people like position English? So I guess, uh, like I said a moment ago, I'm not incredibly well versed in metal, but I do listen to a lot of metal. And um, when I listen to metal, it's generally English, German, maybe a Scandinavian language. It's not that much in Japanese. But in Japan, we have a term called like Yumikorab, which is like a dream collaboration. So when I was writing the lyrics, I really felt you know, this is sort of a dream collaboration, right? You've got this like sort of Western metal and Japanese lyrics. So I wasn't worried about what people would say about it. I thought this is going to be really cool. Interesting. Well, something else that makes uh, Isilil's uh, lyrics quite distinct from those of other metal bands is in terms of their themes, uh, because thematically speaking, your lyrics seem, um, you know, if we read it correctly, quite romantic, um, if also melancholic, with lines that describe, you know, wiping away someone else's tears, holding their hand, even saying, I love you. And in fact, uh, many of your lyrics describe situations where the narrator like is fighting for or alongside some loved one. For example, in Keisei Densetsu, the opening lines describe the narrator fighting together with someone and later promising that they'll never leave their side. And when we looked at it, like seven of your 10 songs reference love explicitly. So we wondered why did this become such a consistent theme in your lyrics so far? <laughs> So I think um, my lyrics really mirror my life. And in my life, what I value most is love. And I feel that when you're speaking, especially in lyrics, you need to really kind of hammer things home. You know, you need to say them many, many times because they're just that important. And really having those important themes and expressing them to me is so important. I was actually surprised that love, the word love was in there seven out of 10 songs. But um, yeah, you know, that's kind of the main driving focus of me as a person and also what I wanted to include in the songs. We noticed that a lot of your songs that involve references to love also involve elements of darkness, struggle or sadness. Uh, is this due by chance to a restriction in kind of how you have to write about romantic love in order to make it feel compatible with metal music? Uh, like references to darkness or, you know, nighttime appear much more often than daylight uh, and daytime throughout the lyrics. Uh, is there like a need for love to be balanced against darker elements? Um, like, is it, is it even possible to write a metal song expressing like the joy of being in love, for instance? <laughs> 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 
<laughs> yeah, so honestly,、um, whenever I'm writing lyrics, I really write them freely. So I'm not worried about you know, having to balance things or it has to be this way or that way for a metal song. But、um, just for me, those elements like darkness and kind of sadness or melancholy are also big parts of my life. So since I was kind of born as Himaritsuki Shiro, there have been many times where, you know, just the pressures of living kept me from getting out of bed for days on end, you know, where I was just really crushed under kind of the weight of existing. And the only way I was able to really get on my feet again was through the power of love. So, all of those lyrics are really just coming from my own kind of experience, from my own life. And、um, yeah, those are just all、uh, very important elements of who I am.、Hmm. Well, have you ever received any criticism for including like such consistent references to love? Like, you know, people just saying that's not metal or something along those lines? I ask just because when we've talked to other lyricists about, you know,、uh, Common elements of metal lyricism, or what's allowed or not allowed within the context of metal lyricism. People generally say that you know, metal lyrics can be you know, totally free. You can talk about whatever you want. However, we very rarely see love integrated into metal lyrics. And, and people have said that you know, they find it really difficult to write about love. And in, in, that, in part, that's due to you know, the expectations that listeners have of metal、um, music you know, not involving those kinds of like, more positive themes. So, yeah, I, I suppose, yeah, going back to my question, is is this something that you've ever, like, you know, received any criticism over? So, to be honest,、um, nobody's ever said that to me. So,、um, I think it might be partially because I'm coming from that idol genre. And,、um, you know, right now, I don't really care how people categorize me. I don't have any preference. So, if people say, Idol or artist or solo performer, you can basically categorize me however you like. But a lot of my fans who've kind of been with me for a long time, they've really seen the struggles I've gone through and the difficulties I've gone through. And, you know, I put a lot of that out there on social media and things like that. So they really know kind of a lot about my past and the path I've taken. And a lot of times they'll say to me, Thank you for staying true to yourself. Thank you for staying strong or always bouncing back. From these difficult situations. And my response to that is always the only way I've been able to do that is because of love. So, that concept of love is just very important to me. So, while I haven't received any kind of negative feedback, I have had a lot of fans who've actually reacted positively to that sort of message or theme. Nice. Well, to move then into like, the lyrics a bit in more detail,、uh, besides the use of Japanese itself, probably the most immediately conspicuous、uh, element is the title of songs.、Uh, so, on the first album,、uh, nine of the ten tracks have、uh, four ca- kanji character compounds in their names. So, they're, they're written with、uh, four kanji next to each other.、Uh, this next part is more for people that are listening rather than、uh, you two. You'll, you'll know this. But、uh, in Japanese, there are a lot of、um, idioms which are made up of four kanji characters called yojijukugo, and the characters combine to have some kind of metaphorical meaning. The titles of your songs, as far as we can tell, are not. Literal Yoji Jukugo,、uh, for instance, the song En En Futo combines the words grasping and indomitable in a way that certainly appears to have kind of poetic meaning, but it doesn't, though that combination doesn't appear in an actual Yoji Jukugo dictionary or anything like that. That said,、uh, in your lyrics, you do have Yoji Jukugo like Inga Oho,、uh, Retributive Justice, Teni Muho,、uh, Flawless Beauty, and Musan Musho, Tavanis Like Mist, that do appear. So taking this all together, You know, the, the official ones and the titles that kind of have that same 
look to them. What draws you to these kinds of four character compounds uh, in your lyrics? So I wouldn't say that I have necessarily like a really strong affection towards Yojijukugo myself. But um, when we were putting together the album or putting together the songs, the first one to be completed was Komyokeshi. And the title Komyokeshi for me was sort of like a, like a um, divine, like divinely inspired. It just kind of came into being, it flashed into being, and it just fit that song so perfectly. And so when I was doing the titles for the other songs, I thought it would be really cool to kind of follow that theme and to have four kanji or four character titles for each of the songs. And when I started thinking with that frame, the titles for all the songs just really came boom, 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 boom. The only one that didn't really fit was the last song. And that's why I decided to name it Genesis in English, as opposed to the four kanji or the four character Japanese names. And um, one other thing that I really was taking kind of into consideration was also the kind of mouthfeel, the, the pronunciation of the titles and like how they would sound when uh, read aloud. And then on top of that, for each character, for each kanji, there's specific meanings inherent to that uh, kanji itself. So they can change a little bit or be dependent upon the way they're combined with other kanji to form words. But in that individual character, there's a lot of meaning. And so I was able to bring a lot of um, inspiration or kind of the feeling of that kanji, that character itself, into the titles and kind of express a lot with a little in terms of like um, uh, letter length, so the total number of letters used. Hmm. So in that sense, uh, why did you decide to depart from that pattern um, in naming the uh, final track, uh, So, which has the English name uh, Genesis? So so why did you decide to depart from the Yojizukugo for that one title? So whenever I'm doing the lyrics or thinking about the titles, I'm really free. Like I'm trying to be very free in my expression. So I try not to be tied down by anything. And um, when we were doing Genesis, you know, it's got elements of all the other songs in the albums of the other nine songs contained within there. And it was such a big song, such a kind of complex song with so many different parts. Thinking about the title, I just didn't feel like I could really express it in just four kanji. And also, you know, I'm Japanese, I'm singing Japanese, I really love Japanese culture, but in that song in particular, I felt like that sort of um, uh, like package or that sort of um, wrapping wasn't big enough to fit all of the concepts contained within the song. So I thought, well, okay, let's just cast off that concept of it has to be for kanji it's the end of the album, but it's also the beginning. It's a bigger step into something new, into a new me, almost. And so I chose the title Genesis in English because, you know, in English is sort of this worldwide uh, international language. So it almost supersedes that um, kind of barrier that's imposed by the Japanese. Interesting. Well, so moving to word type within the songs themselves, um, this question again will begin with a little bit of background for uh, listeners, stuff that you two both know. But um, 
Uh, in Japanese, there are three major word types. You have uh, wago, which are words that have been in Japan or come from Japanese for a long time. Uh, kango, which are imported from uh, varieties of Chinese. And then gairaigo, which are words from anywhere else, usually uh, quite often from English. In your lyrics, you seem to have a very distinct preference for wago. So, for instance, in general, um, a Japanese text will use about 30 to 50 percent kango. But on the song Enen Futo, we mentioned earlier, only 12 of 80 words are Congo, which is just 12.5%. Uh, the single Komyo Kishi is also just 20% Congo. Uh, then on uh, Gesho Kusenka, or Hymn of Oculation, there's even less at just 7%. And uh, Jodo Dokusho, or the Aria of the Pure Land, has just five Congo out of 85 words, so that's 58 uh, there are also even times where you seem to kind of trick readers. Like there's a place I saw where uh, kanji normally read using the Congo reading of seijaku are used instead for the kind of obscure wago word uh, shijima in the line shijima ni naru kodo. So we've obviously chosen kind of extreme cases for this question, but why do you think that you lean towards this specific word type? Like, is there a goal on focusing on wago over the other uh, word types in Japanese? 多分それも自然にではあったと思うんですけど、あの、この情報どこからかちょっとわからないんです。I can't remember where I read this, but many years ago I read that for people from other countries, people coming from a non-Japanese background, the Japanese language actually sounds very good on the ears. It's a good sounding or a beautiful sounding language. And when I read that, you know, that really took root in my heart. So as somebody who is proud to be Japanese or loves Japanese culture, to think, oh, our language is beautiful, really made an impression on me. And so when writing lyrics, I think that um, really bringing forth, exuding as much beauty and making sure that it sounds as good as possible, it sounds as pleasing as possible to people is very important for me. Um, so, for example, you get the, the change in reading from Seijaku, which would be the Kango reading, to Shijima, which would be the Wago reading. And I just, when putting that lyric together or kind of putting those, the, it together with the song, I just thought Shijima sounded a lot more beautiful. It was a lot more pleasing to the ear. I think for people, you know, they're drawn to beauty. They're drawn to things that feel good. And so for my songs or for my lyrics, I really want them to be beautiful so that they can draw people in. Hmm. Is there any intent of contrasting with the song titles? Because um, these all use the uh, onyomi or Chinese-based readings of the kanji, um, which seems to contradict or clash with the reliance on Japanese readings and the lyrics themselves. So I'm really not, uh, I wasn't aware or I didn't do that purposefully. I think for me, I was just really thinking about the feeling, you know, the feeling behind the words or the feeling of that title as it was read moreover than, you know, a particular way of reading it or the particular way that it was uh, constructed. Well, there are obviously, you know, um, Congo in the lyrics. I don't, I don't know if it'd be possible to write without any of them. Uh, one thing that is completely missing is Gairaigo. There's not a single uh, loan word, uh, not even, I believe, a single use of katakana throughout your lyrics. Is this something you intentionally avoided including? So it wasn't something that I necessarily set out to avoid, but I really like um, literature and I like kind of like the way that the words fit together. And to be honest, katakana just didn't fit. So when I was writing the lyrics, it just wasn't something that kind of came to mind because for me, they just wouldn't have fit the overall flow of the lyrics. 
なんでだろうでもなかったですね。おそらくないんです。うん、but it's kind of mysterious. <laughs> now, hearing that, I'm now realizing that there weren't any, but I don't think that I specifically set out to do that. Well, one thing that's kind of surprised us, given that there, there is no you know, Gairaigo, is that we've actually、uh, talked to a few bands that do avoid Katakana and Gairaigo.、Um, in our formal research, for instance, we've interviewed、uh, Gotsu Totsukotsu and the now defunct band、mm-hmm. Rakshasa, that、uh, also use a lot of you know,、uh, focus on Japanese vocabulary.、Um, but what's distinct about what you do versus theirs is that they also completely avoided English, more or less. And you seem quite comfortable mixing English and Japanese. Uh, beyond the song title Genesis, you have three tracks that include English lines,、uh, such as As You Take Your Last Breath, I Won't Leave You Behind, Our Love Will Survive, and etc.、Uh, why did you decide to include English in your lyrics、uh, while actively avoiding you know, English words that have been borrowed into Japanese? Honestly, I just put the English in there because it felt better. Uh, it felt better to have those phrases in English, and I was able to kind of express myself more directly with that English than I would have been in Japanese in those specific instances. For example,、um, not lyrics, but recently on the social media platform X, you know, a lot of times when I'm expressing myself on there and I really want to express myself directly, I find myself writing in English rather than Japanese. So it can be. Kind of scary to really express yourself in a raw or kind of exposed manner in Japanese. But in English, it feels a little bit more natural. It feels a little bit more powerful to put it out there.、Um, and on top of that, you know, a lot of times when we're performing overseas or when I'm singing in front of an international audience,、um, it's really nice to have some English lyrics in there because the fans can get into it. You know, the, if there's a few lyrics, That are in your own native language or language that you speak more readily, I think it really hits things home or it really kind of brings the fans in. And so I thought, amidst those 10 songs, I at least wanted to have a bit of English mixed in there. Why do, why do you feel English is more direct? You know, obviously, I know a lot of Japanese, like it's my native language. So I tend to sort of overthink it when I'm writing in Japanese. So if I phrase things this way or that way,、uh, maybe people's feelings won't be hurt, people won't misunderstand it, people won't kind of take the wrong approach to it. And so I really find myself kind of mired down in. Choosing the right word or choosing how to say things, my English isn't that good. And so, if I just use the limited English I have at my disposal to really express myself directly, it's a lot more freeing. It's a lot more just kind of direct and also liberating to put it out that way, as opposed to having to worry about all of the intricacies of Japanese. But that's also a bit different than lyrics. You know, that's talking about social media posts, things like that. So, lyrically, it's a different ballgame. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, something else that we noticed in your lyrics were just a few cases of older grammar.、Um, so, throughout your lyrics,、uh, the not verb forms、uh, nu, as in、uh, shiranu,、uh, or zu, as in mirezu. Uh, appear a total of six times across your songs.、Um, but we also notice the base negative nai, as in shiranai, minai,、um, appears 27 times.、Um, so, was there a reason behind your use of fairly modern forms of speech and grammar as opposed to、uh, the older forms, given that there are older forms that we do see throughout your lyrics? 
just you know if it sounds better as a phrase like just the way it sounds really we we actually we heard that exact uh answer before too mm-hmm. <laughs> syllables change right you lose you you lose the syllable so you can so that's true um it is partially the syllables syllables but it's also um the the kind of the strength or the feeling behind there. So if you use the older form, it can sound a little bit softer or a little bit stronger depending on the word. So whenever I'm putting the songs together, it's like you have a whole story. And looking at the way the words fit together, the story fits together, for example, if you use mire nu as opposed to mire nai, it's only one syllable difference. So you can kind of make that work one way or the other. But mire nu sounds quite a bit stronger. It's got more of a punch to it. So looking at how I want to connect that one lyric with other parts of the song or with other parts of the story, if you really want to drive it in, using mire nu can kind of bring it home. Interesting. Um, another place of variation that uh, exists in Japanese is, is the use of first-person pronouns, you know, the way the word used for I. Um, and there's obviously a number of options. You know, you have watashi, ore, atashi, boku, and each are associated with different people and contexts. Uh, in your lyrics, though, you uh, rely almost exclusively on watashi, which appears 11 times, and ware, which appears 12 times, uh, with one use of onore uh, as well. Is there a reason that you selected these pronouns in particular, and is there a difference between when and why you use them in your mind? So I think really to break it down, um, normally I would use watashi or hima, my own name, when referring to myself normally. But in the lyrics, there are times when I want to kind of have that softer, normal watashi uh, phrasing. And there's also times when I use ware, which is more like um, a soldier or a warrior or somebody going to war, you know, somebody doing battle. It's a stronger kind of um, pronoun to use for yourself. So I think that's really the main way I divide those myself. If I'm talking about just kind of my normal, more human self or my more kind of warrior side. <laughs> So yeah, I think, you know, whenever I'm writing the lyrics, I'm kind of acting as myself, but also there's this kind of warrior spirit or warrior side, like, that comes out in the midst of that. So kind of like fighting through my own past, fighting through these situations that have come up. And um, in the choreography, so all the songs have choreography that goes along with them. And in a lot of that choreography is battle. So it's either striking or cutting with a sword, things like that. And the music videos, similarly, you know, sword play, using swords, wearing armor, things like that. And that wade pronoun is really kind of reflected of that sort of warrior mentality, like we're going to battle. <laughs> kind of adding like an addendum onto that. I also love anime. And if you're familiar with the term chunibyo, um, second, yeah. like second grade middle school sickness, which is that sort of, I am the dark flame master kind of thing. I probably have a bit of that as well. Okay. Um, and in... <laughs> In contrast, is there a particular reason why you avoid other common pronouns like boku, ore, or atashi? Really simply, it's just because I don't use those normally myself. 
Um, so like I said a bunch of times, you know, I'm really kind of singing about my own experiences or singing from the heart. And like ore, boku, atashi are not pronouns I would normally use myself. So they just don't really fit with the lyrics, you know, it just wouldn't be a good fit for myself in there. You've used Watashi in this interview, but um, do you use ware in your day-to-day -day life? Mm. So I don't use it in my day-to-day -day life, but I'm also active as an actor in a stage presentation, in a stage play. And the character in that play uses ware very frequently. And so I really feel a strong connection to that character. Like that character is also sort of an extension of myself. So when I was writing the lyrics, ware just came very naturally. Uh, what about um, second person pronouns? So in Japanese, there's a lot of words for you as well. And in the lyrics, there's a preference for kimi, which appears 16 times. And then there's just one use of anata uh, and no others. Is there a reason for this preference uh, for kimi over all other options? So I think with um, anata, it's very much a you and me. There's a kind of barrier or a wall between the two. But with Kimi, it's a bit closer. It's a bit more like you and me together. So I find that that's just a bit more natural for me. Um, and, you know, kind of like showing that connection as opposed to showing that distance in the lyrics. What about um, quote unquote vulgar pronouns? Like there's no use of anything like omai or teme, which we have seen a few times <laughs> in other uh, Japanese metal lyrics. Uh, is there a reason that you avoided these kind of insulting uh, second person pronouns? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, uh, honestly, I would really never want to use those in the lyrics because I'm singing to a person and I'm always wanting to, the, uh, the, um, the listener would be somebody that you want to protect, that you want to save, that you want to reach out to. And even on the street in Japan, if you hear somebody say, omai or teme, you kind of pull back, right? And I never want the listener to pull back when they're listening to my songs. I always want to bring them in closer. So for me, I want to use those kind of pronouns that would bring the listener in as opposed to push them away. So, you know, I'm not sure about other bands or kind of like the metal scene in general, but for me, you know, a word that I received that kind of hurt me or a word that I received that made me feel negatively is not something I would ever want to put into my lyrics. You know, I don't want to put something hurtful towards the listener into lyrics that I'm going to sing. Um, something else that we saw in your lyrics is a fair few number of references to Buddhism. Uh, so the songs Gomyo, Kishi uh, and Genesis mention Rine or Samsara multiple times. Um, other songs mention uh, Jakko uh, or Nirvana and Sai no Kawara. Um, a boundary where cells uh, of children cross over to the underworld. Um, Shurado, um, or the Asho realm, um, is used as a metaphor for a battlefield. And some Yojijukugo, uh, like uh, Jimmy Raisei, um, forever, um, have roots in Buddhism as well. Uh, so discussion of religion in metal is certainly nothing new. Um, but is this a recreation of that trope or is this something uh, that's, you know, developed from some other source? Uh, thank you for <laughs> so, you know, really happy to receive that question. This isn't something I've had an opportunity to talk about a lot, but actually I went to a Buddhist uh, kindergarten when I was young. My parents were Buddhist, so it was something like Buddhism as a concept or as a religion 
was always something kind of very close to me growing up. Um, so if you ask me now, do I view Buddhism as something good or something bad? You know, that would be a difficult question for me to answer, but it's definitely part of me as a person and my culture. And so when I was writing the lyrics, I really wanted to include that in there. You know, I grew up being able to kind of recite Buddhist chants by heart and really having that, uh, really being exposed to it uh, for a long time and from a young age. So it's kind of an important aspect of who I am. Our final set of questions then wants to kind of move to uh, the the written form of the lyrics because we noticed uh, specific tendencies in how you use kanji. Um, so the first is that you have a tendency to write words using very, very difficult and rare kanji variants. Um, so for listeners, again, some words in Japanese can be written multiple ways. Uh, and one is like the quote unquote normal version that the government uh, puts down and teaches in school. And the others are historical variants. They're no longer taught, but, you know, everyone's free to use. Uh, this question is going to be hard to do without like showing pictures, but I'm going to try to describe what's going on. Um, in the lyrics, there are these variants quite a bit. Uh, for instance, the word karada or body is normally written with a character that just uses seven strokes. But in the lyrics, it's written with a 23 stroke variant, which is quite rare. Uh, the word kageri or shade is normally a 10 stroke kanji, but there's a 17 stroke variant that's been used. And uh, words like kibo or wish. Uh, the first kanji there was replaced from the normal seven-stroke version to a 16-stroke version. And likewise, we noted common vocabulary like owari, end, and itai, painful, uh, written using really obscure variants that um, I hadn't actually seen the owari variant despite uh, 20 years of Japanese study now. And when we try to type them, the computer refuses to produce them. Like it just doesn't, you know, it doesn't allow it to come up. So what is the goal between switching to these Harder, more obscure kanji characters in the written form of the lyrics. So, uh, basically, when I'm writing lyrics, you always want to make sure that you're putting the correct kanji or the correct words in there. So, when I'm going through, I always check in the dictionary to make sure is this correct? You know, is this actually the kanji I'm trying to write? There's no kind of misspellings or kind of like. Uh, in Japanese, you'd say goji, like uh, missed kanji or incorrect kanji in there. And a lot of times when I'm going through the dictionary, it will bring up the historical variations as well as the current simple variation. And the historical variation looks better. It's cooler. You know, it just has kind of a better feel to it. That's the short answer. But also on top of that, you know, really writing lyrics from my own life, writing lyrics from kind of my own experience, a lot of times you're going through the day and you're just wondering, why are things so difficult today? You know, yesterday was easy. Why is this happening today? Why is today so much tougher than it was yesterday? And you're just kind of running up against, you know, struggle after struggle after struggle and kind of putting those more difficult kanji in there is kind of my way of just bringing that kind of struggle into the lyrics and also kind of distancing it from the kind of normal average day to day, like bringing it into that realm of fantasy almost. And kind of another level on top of that, whenever you're going through the lyric sheets for a group, in Japanese, if you come across a word that you don't know, you're unfamiliar with, or a kanji you're unfamiliar with, most people will look it up. And when you're looking it up, uh, that can be kind of a new discovery. It can be a new kind of 
um, like a mystery that's revealed to you through looking that up. So that's, I think, really fun, you know. On the other hand, when I'm listening to metal lyrics or I'm actually listening to metal songs, sometimes I'll look the lyrics up and realize, oh, cool, you know, I never heard this English word before. This is a really great word. I want to learn this. And so I'd like for my lyrics also to be kind of a journey of discovery for the people reading them so that there's kind of those little mysteries contained within each song. Are you worried at all that when people read the lyrics, they'll just have trouble like being able to read them or like is is the legibility of the lyrics a concern at all so uh fortunately this time we actually release a japanese version as well as an international version of the album and the international version has the english translated lyrics in there a lot of my fans are actually studying japanese or trying to learn japanese so i think for them um you know, it's really cool to see fans looking at the Japanese lyrics and then putting them up against the English lyrics and kind of learning the new words or kind of like getting a little bit more out of it than just kind of reading through them. So instead of being afraid that um, fans might not understand or might not be able to grasp the concept, on the other hand, I look forward to them kind of being able to make these new discoveries and sort of deepen their knowledge of Japanese language and culture through the lyrics. Oh, sorry, sorry if I wasn't clear. That. I meant actually like Japanese fans, like the <laughs> Japanese people reading the lyrics and being like, I don't know this kanji, I can't read this. Like, is that is that uh, a worry at all? <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of fans do say it's a bit difficult. They have a bit of trouble with it. So um, another thing that we notice with kanji use is that sometimes you will use kanji for words that we would normally see written in hiragana. Uh, examples are uh, you write the words made until yagate finally and subete all in kanji quite often. Uh, but you know, in say a newspaper, we would see these usually in, in the hiragana script. Um, are you by chance attempting to reduce the presence of hiragana in your lyrics, or is this just more about increasing kanji? And in either case, uh, what's kind of your motivation? So yeah, that's also part of my personality. You know, I feel like if there's a way to put it in kanji, I want to put it in kanji. It's sort of just an aspect of my personality. Even when I'm writing a blog, like a blog online, most of the hiragana that can be converted into kanji, I'll write in kanji. <laughs> so just personality-wise, I feel like I'm kind of a perfectionist. And if there's a way to kind of fix fix that from going uh, from hiragana into kanji, I just really want to kind of go in that direction. Uh, use that. Can I add something too? Is it okay? So I think also this is something that personally I've kind of felt myself from uh, just Ricky as me from the lyrics. Um, Isilial is actually Elvish. So it's from uh, Tolkien's uh, Elvish language. And there's a very strong fantasy element to the lyrics and the overall presentation of Isilial. And I think coming from Japanese, like you mentioned, um, yagate or made would normally be in hiragana in a newspaper, but they'd normally be in hiragana in a newspaper. And so it's very average or normal or day-to-day -day or kind of like, it's what you would experience just reading a newspaper or reading through a company brochure or something that you would come across in your day-to-day -day life. 
But I think um, both myself and Willis Himati, you know, when we're making making Isilial, presenting Isilial, we want to have that kind of like fantasy element, that kind of not every day, that sort of super normal element in the lyrics and in the presentation. So I also think it's really cool, you know, the difficult kanji, the um, using kanji as opposed to hiragana, it takes it one step out of that normal and into that kind of realm of fantasy or super normal that personally actually really works with metal. You know, um, this is also, sorry, I don't want to go off too much, but personally, I don't like uh, metal that's very like day to day, you know, like I don't want to hear a guy singing about doing his taxes on a power metal song. I want something a little bit more epic, a little bit bigger. So maybe he's having a big... <laughs> you know, a big struggle to do his taxes, but let's not talk about going to the accountant. Let's talk about going to the mystic seer on the top of the blackened mountain to, you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think part of that is reflected in the lyrics and the way they're written as well, where it's like, it's taking it out of that realm of the ordinary. It's bringing it a little bit out. So even though it might be a little bit more difficult or it might be a little bit harder to kind of wrap your head around, it's also bringing you into this different realm, I think, that you wouldn't normally experience. Well, talking about your script choices collectively then, um, do you consider the written form of your lyrics to be a distinct part of the overall artwork? And obviously, when, you know, when people listen to your music, they won't be able to tell that you've made a lot of these script choices until they read the lyrics themselves. Uh, and primarily, we would describe what you do as music. Uh, but do you view uh, this as part of, you know, perhaps silent, you know, written form um, of your lyrics? So I think definitely everything I put out there as an artist, I feel like I'm giving birth to. And just when you give birth to a child, you want to be able to love them. You want to be able to raise them in the correct way. You want to kind of make no, you know, give no quarter. You don't want to make any shortcuts. Everything should be the way that you really want it to be when you're talking about this child that you've given birth to. And I feel for my music and also the lyrics included, it's all like a baby that you're bringing into the world. So you want everything to be as perfect as it possibly can be for that child. <laughs> well, to kind of take all these ideas and, and put them together, um, what would you ultimately say is the role of lyrics and language in your work and in metal or idol metal more broadly? So I think it's a little bit difficult to explain, but I would say it's really the heart of the overall music. When I was part of an idol group, um, I was given the explanation that that group, the members of the group, form one organism, form one living thing. And at that time, unfortunately, I was said, maybe you're the left leg. <laughs> but I think, oh, I said that. <laughs> maybe I said you're the left leg. And I think as a solo performer, as a solo artist, um, every element that you're bringing in is one organ or one part of a living thing that you are creating as an artist or as a uh, work of art. And for me, I think the lyrics are really the heart. So the heart of the organism, but also the heart, like the heart and soul heart of the overall musical venture, the overall musical project. So for me, it's an extremely important part of Isilio. Great. Well, 
Fasada, thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, this has been really fascinating. Um, I think one of the things that's like come out of this as being really interesting um, to me personally, I'm sure Wes would agree, is how little um, influence that you've drawn directly from um, metal, whether that be Japanese metal or, you know, metal more broadly. And um, interestingly, how similar a lot of your practices are to those that we've observed, not just in, you know, Japanese metal lyrics, but in, you know, metal lyrics that we see, um, yeah, around the world. So I, I think that's um, been really interesting for us. So, yeah, I think... Um... Talking in a kind of like metal interview to say this, I hope that you're not too surprised, but, you know, I really didn't have that much experience in metal myself. Like it wasn't a genre that compared to other like really hardcore heavy metal fans, I'm extremely well versed in. But, you know, even in the group that I was in, uh, we were singing heavy metal songs. I really liked it. You know, I really learned to love metal and now kind of like growing in that and kind of meeting other people in that area, meet, uh, being exposed to other metal, you know, it's just a really great kind of chemical reaction. And I feel that it's really kind of like bringing a lot out of myself as well. Is there something, you know, that you found in, in moving into metal, like in, you started this interview by saying you're, um, you know, a metal baby, but as, as growing into a metal adult, if we will, uh, is there anything that, that, that you found to be like extremely weird? <laughs> So I don't know if I can say this in a metal interview, but the emphasis on guitars and like the, the bigness of the guitars sometimes blows me away or kind of takes me aback a bit. Uh, so really what I love most about metal is the heaviness. I love kind of the heaviness that you really feel at the core of your being where it feels like a heart beating in you from the music. And, um, you know, to see some metal bands or to be even performing with a metal band, and even though the vocalist or you are in front, to have the guitars mixed so high or coming out so uh, loudly that the guitars are sort of taking center stage is always a little bit of a blowback experience. <laughs> but especially when you listen to the guitar solos, you're like, ah, I get it. It's really, really cool. <laughs> <laughs> so uh Isilio's first album was actually recorded mixed and mastered by Frederick Nordstrom and uh when the first uh, what would you say like the first demo of the album came up uh I received that and listened to it and I felt like I was kind of playing back band to the guitars the guitars were so forward in the mix that I was like oh I'm in the background this isn't my album so I actually had one tear kind of rolling down my cheek when I contacted Ricky and was like it's not my album it's a guitar album and when we gave that feedback to Frederick he came back saying yeah it's a guitar studio <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but in the end, you know, we brushed it up and it became a really, really good album. So fortunate. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for all your time today. Uh, if people want to check out more of what you're doing, what's the best place for them to, to go do that? Okay, so I would probably say number one, Spotify, number two, YouTube. So we're up on Spotify, we're up on YouTube. Please check us out there. Yeah, you mentioned, uh, so this will come out you know, a little after a big announcement, but, but any, anything coming up uh, in the future for people to look out for? Yeah, we are actually going to be back in Europe right at the end of this year and early January when this, uh, not album, when this podcast is out, 
that information should be up. So you can check us out on X, previously known as Twitter, Instagram. It'll be all up there. Um, other sites as well should have it. But yeah, it's going to be a little kind of mini year-end tour to kind of tie things up. Wonderful. Any chance of making it over to Australia eventually? We would love to. We actually <laughs> had a tour, a tentative tour in Australia lined up, but it fell through. So oh, no. I know that was about about a year ago. Uh, so the tour itself didn't end up going through. We were bummed. We want to go to Australia. We would love to. So hopefully um, with the first world tour, we did quite a few countries for the first time. So I would love to see Australia up there next. I think actually on Spotify, I was just looking today and I think the sixth biggest listenership is maybe in Sydney, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, really? Yeah, I, so they were up there pretty high. I was, I, I, I was surprised because it's like, you know, um, some cities in the US, Germany, um, UK, London, and then Sydney was right up there. So I was like, hmm. Okay, that's a good sign. <laughs> I'm surprised, but I'm also kind of not surprised. <laughs> there you go. Oh, Hopefully, been, that will be in the near future. That'd be amazing. Yeah. No, because I'm located in Sydney, so that that's that's a show I can go to really easy. And we just would be love mad to. if you don't go to. Just be very mad if you don't go to Perth. I'm sure. Yeah, well, nobody comes to Perth. To to Perth, <laughs> well. to Perth. If we're going down to Australia, I mean, we just spent the last two weeks driving from the east coast of or west coast of America to the east coast and back. So. Mm-hmm. I don't think I can drive across the entire Australian outback, mm. but almost. Wouldn't advise it. <laughs> that was a long drive. There'd be less jet lag, though. That's the benefit. Mm. There you go. Just going yeah. south. Yeah, yeah. Easy. It's yeah, yeah, simple. Yeah, simple. Yeah, simple. Yeah, simple. Yeah, simple. All right. Thank you guys so much yeah. for having us. No problem. Thank you so much for your time, especially on a Friday night. Thank you so much. Arigato. Thanks so much. And thanks so much to Ricky uh, for yeah. your translation yeah. oh efforts. Gosh, uh, huge, uh, yeah, huge, Incredible. huge thank you. Particularly as the person primarily benefiting from those translations, I want to say <laughs> no problem. special thank you to you. My pleasure. Yeah, no problem at all. Hopefully, they, I always get a little bit nervous when we have like a very fluent Japanese speaker because it's yeah. like, oh, I, I can't cut corners. I have to give it all. <laughs> no, I was sincerely impressed, man. Like, like the length of our our question length is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. We, we like we we write questions that are way too long. It's it's a huge problem we have. Um, and then you just got it all in there, and then like the answers were all detailed. You got all that. I yeah, way way above that live translation stuff is not a skill set I have. So very impressed. It's a little tricky, but it's one of those things where it's like a little bit of caffeine and I can usually pull. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Thank you guys so much. It was a great interview. <laughs> Thanks guys so much. Have a good one. See you again. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to Lingua Italica. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you stay tuned for our next episode. Before we leave, we just wanted to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay respects to their elders, past and present. Mm-hmm.